Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network, where we discuss with philosophers their new ideas as expressed in their newly published books. I'm Carrie Figder, and I'm co-host of the channel, along with Robert Talese. Love, that is being loved and loving in the way two otherwise unrelated persons can be, is a kind of experience that almost everyone values intrinsically. As we often say or sing, Love makes the world go round, and all you need is love. But what sort of experience is loving? What more can we say about it that will illuminate the kind of experience that it is? In his groundbreaking new book, Love's Vision, from Princeton University Press, Troy Jollymore, who is professor of philosophy at California State University at Chico, argues that love is a matter of vision in that it literally transforms the eyes. It is an emotion that is partly but essentially characterized by the special kind of visual experience that it brings about. This visual experiential view of love makes love a kind of emotion that is partly responsive to reasons and to the claims of morality. On Jolly Moore's account, we do love for reasons, but because love is responsive to reasons, some puzzles arise. For example, if Brad loves Angelina because she possesses some set of features, then isn't he rationally obligated to love anyone who has those features and rationally obligated to stop loving Angelina if she loses any or all of those features? And seeing love as a visual experiential phenomenon also raises special epistemic and moral problems. If love's vision makes us blind to the flaws of the beloved, doesn't that violate basic epistemic norms under which we are supposed to track the truth as closely as we can. And if love's vision is a kind of tunnel vision in which the beloved is the center of our universe, aren't we apt to ignore the legitimate needs of others to which we should respond given basic ethical norms? Troy responds to these and other puzzles in this intriguing volume, one that is likely to generate a lot of discussion for the way he stakes out a bold new view of the nature of love. So let's bring Troy on the line to explain what Love's Vision is all about. Hello, Troy. Yes, hi. Hi. Welcome to New Books and Philosophy. Thanks. Okay, and thank you for agreeing to uh, be interviewed. So we're talking with Troy Jollymore from Cal State University, Chico, um, about your new book, uh, Love's Vision, from Princeton University Press. Um, so before before we get into the the meat of the interview, um, maybe you can say something about your philosophical ba- background, how you got interested in philosophy, um, and maybe something also about your your background in poetry, um, because you are a award winning poet as well as a philosopher. Yeah, I'd uh, be happy to. I think um, my story about how I got into philosophy is in broad outline, the same as a lot of stories out there, which is that I was drawn in through a really talented teacher. 
um, or in fact, actually in this case, with a couple of teachers. And at the time, this is back uh, when I was an undergraduate, I was uh, an English major because really the poetry thing preceded the philosophy thing. I had philosophical interest before I really knew what philosophy was and certainly before I knew that it was a profession or something that you could make a living at. Uh, but all along through high school and when I entered college, I thought I wanted to be a writer and so I would study English and then that would make me a writer or at least help me become one. Uh, and it didn't work. It wasn't the right major for me at all um, for a number of reasons. Uh, but it was really – there was something about the clinical approach to it uh, that I was finding at least where I happened to go to school that was really killing my desire to write rather than feeding it. Uh, and I felt like I was a surgeon performing autopsies on these texts rather than somebody who was getting excited about them and wanted to produce his own stuff. That's a familiar feeling. I have the yeah. same one. Yes. <laughs> it's a sad thing, honestly. Um, yes, but fortunately, you know, I realized in time. And through a stroke of luck, uh, I was dating a girl who was in a philosophy course and kept raving about how great it was. And uh, one day I decided to go. And she kept saying, oh, you should come. You should come see these guys. It's team taught by these two guys. Uh, they're wonderful. So I went one day, and it was just a fabulous experience. They were talking about the existence of God. And I, I remember very distinctly. I can picture the room. I can remember where I was sitting. And I remember so distinctly thinking to myself, um, here's something that I've been wondering about for years and could never really talk about. Uh, with, with anybody. I, I just wandered on the inside and I never for whatever reason felt comfortable bringing it up, it, partly because I didn't realize that you could talk about it in a reasoned way. And the idea of a room full of people uh, engaged in that sort of conversation on, on a topic that mattered so much and doing it in a very reasonable way and really trying to figure out what was actually going on rather than just sort of expressing opinions meaninglessly or something like that. Uh, it was very moving to me. It was very compelling. And I knew I just wanted to be there. And so I started attending that class every day even though I wasn't enrolled. Um, and at the end of the semester, uh, this was at uh, Dalhousie University in Halifax, Nova Scotia. And the course was team taught by these two profs, uh, Terry Tomko and Duncan McIntosh. And I remember meeting Duncan at the end of the semester at a, uh, some sort of a gathering. Maybe it was a Christmas party at the philosophy department and introducing myself. And he said, oh, yeah, you're in my class, you know. And, uh, and I said, well, not really. You know, I'm not actually enrolled, but I've just been coming every day and, and participating and, you know, just been loving the class. But it was about at that time that I decided that clearly the philosophy department was where I wanted to be. Uh, and, you know, the other thing I could say about the philosophy department at Dalhousie, but I suspect this is true in a lot of places, at a lot of schools, is that my experience of it was that it was the one place on campus that you could go any time of day, uh, any day of the week, and there would be some sort of interesting conversation going on in the lounge. It was just um, something you could rely on, and you could just pop in, and you didn't know who it was going to be or what they'd be talking about, but it was always interesting. And so it was almost inevitable that uh, having been introduced to that, I would gravitate towards it. And, of course, I, I never think ahead, so I certainly wasn't thinking, you know, how am I going to make a living with this? What am I going to do with it? Those thoughts just didn't cross my mind. Um, I just enjoyed being there so much, and I had this wonderful, naive idea that the whole point of college is just to learn and to pursue what interests you. And clearly this was what interested me. So that's the way I went. I never stopped writing poetry through this, but I was doing that now on my own rather than trying to study it and that worked much better for me did, did you find your interest in philosophy um somehow taking away from or enhancing your your poetry 
if I had to choose either of those, I'd say enhancing. Um, it certainly didn't take away from it. Uh, and I've never felt any sort of deep conflict. The, the deepest sort of conflict I ever would have felt would be a practical one at certain points where I was very busy with a philosophical project and I couldn't sit down and work on my poetry. But that doesn't happen that often, and that's not a very profound conflict. I've always felt like they were two parts of the same larger project, and I'm surprised that more philosophers don't write poetry. Well, maybe uh, they do, and they just don't admit it. <laughs> maybe that's it. There may be a lot of hidden poetry by philosophers around. That's quite true. Well, it's it's the proverbial no, novel in the drawer, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Who knows how many of those there are. <laughs> um, so how does how does this book, Love's Vision, how does this connect with your your, your main philosophical concerns? I've ended up writing a lot, especially in the books that I've done about personal relationships. I've written some articles on other things, but the books always seem to come back to those. My dissertation was on friendship, and both of these actually, both of these projects started in sort of the same way. Uh, My larger projects especially always start with me reading something that somebody has written and thinking that's just wrong, and I have to show it's wrong and show why. And uh, I remember starting my dissertation... um, on the night when I was at a party and uh, there were some philosophers there and I was talking to one and she was telling me about this book that she was reading by uh, the philosopher Shelley Kagan um, called The Limits of Morality. And there's a very brief section in that book. It's mostly not about this, but there's a two or three page section about friendship where Kagan argues, uh, he's defending essentially a consequentialist view of morality in this book. And he says, well, what about friendship? Isn't there a conflict? And he basically very briefly, without really giving much argument for it, says, uh, well, no, you don't need to be partial to have friends. And so the consequentialist will be perfectly impartial and yet still have friends. And when this friend of mine summarized that view for me, I thought, well, that can't possibly be what Kagan said because that can't possibly be right. And it's so obviously false, you know, I thought to myself. And so the next day I went and I got a copy of the book. And sure enough, that's what he said. And I started to think, okay, there's a paper in this and showing why Kagan is wrong. And I started writing about it, and the paper just got bigger and bigger and turned into the dissertation. And at the end of the dissertation, as we often do, we, I had mixed feelings about it. Um, it had done a lot of what I set out to do, but it didn't do much in terms of presenting a positive view of any sort. It was mostly criticism, uh, not just of Kagan, but of other people too. But it had six chapters, and really the first five were critiquing other people. And the sixth was the one where I sort of gestured towards a kind of positive account of friendship, but in a very, very minimal way. And so I wasn't satisfied, but I thought, you know, maybe that's all I really have to say about it. And four or five years went by during which I was working on other things. And then I started to think, no, you know, I do have more to say about it. And, uh, and not just friendship, but about love um, and actually about loyalty. And when I started the love book, it was intended to be a loyalty book. And the first half of it would be about love and friendship. And then the second half would be uh, about patriotism and nationalism and other forms of loyalty in the political sphere and things like that. And I got a certain distance into it and realized that the love stuff alone uh, was going to be a whole book and that it would be better and stronger standing on its own. Uh, And by this point, I was feeling like, although it much remained to be developed and worked out, and I was still making some important mistakes um, at that point, but uh, I was feeling like at this point I did have basically a, a positive view to offer, which is what I hadn't had before. So that part in particular I felt quite happy with. Very good. So um, 
let's let's talk for a minute just about the what I think of as the basic metaphysics of the view. Um, you know, love is it's an emotion, right? Um, yeah. But you also talk about love's vision, and you you characterize vision. You know, it's you you mean you know, visual experience, and it, it seems to be a, a literal sense. It's not a metaphorical sense. So, could you explain uh-huh. the relationship between the love, the emotion, and and love's vision, the, the visual experience in virtue of which you, you sort of explain more about what, what, what love is. Yeah, I, I do take it, and this begins at least with a thought that I take it as pretty common sense and not very radical at all, that love literally does change the way you see the world. The world looks different to you. If you're, for instance, looking at a room full of people and one of them is the person that you're in love with, as opposed to looking at a room full of strangers, it's a different experience, even visually. Um, because you focus on that one person and you you pay a kind of attention there. You, you follow him or her as they move around the room. Um, you a, a small gesture that they perform will mean something to you that it wouldn't mean to a stranger or that, that they wouldn't mean if that person were a stranger to you. And and my view of perception is extremely holistic. And so it's not as if, you know, I, I think there are these pure visual experiences to which we then add the interpretations at sort of a later stage or something like that. The, the, the experience is infused with the interpretation from the beginning. So if you have anything like that sort of view, then you're almost certain to think that love uh, literally changes the way you see the world. And uh, uh, you know, I should know, you use the word characterize, and I think that's really good, because I don't want to say that it defines... Um, I wouldn't want to say that the definition of love, and you'll notice I'm very cagey in the book, but not offering a definition of love. Right. Uh, I don't want to define it in visual terms because, of course, that would say that uh, that would imply that blind people couldn't love, and I, I'd really hate to have a view that was committed to that. So, in cases with which I'm most familiar, and you know, common cases of sighted people and so on, um, I take it that visual experiences are very important in terms of how we experience the world and make sense of it. And for whatever reason, uh, the visual experiences are the ones most closely connected with this aspect of love. They're, they're not the only experiences that are. I think other forms of experience are also um, influenced in this way. But it's most apparent and it's easiest to write about and it's clearest, etc. cetera. Uh, and the metaphor is clearest, I think, when you talk about vision. And so... The question that, that you asked there or implied at least, you know, the is it literal or is it a metaphor is a very tricky question because in a sense I think really for me it's both. It does both. I want to emphasize and I do at a couple of points during the book that it's not just a metaphor. I do mean it literally. I really do mean that in a quite literal sense love affects the way you see the world. And yet it is also a metaphor because in the more general sense of see, which is not merely strictly speaking visual, but the way you perceive and understand the world, the way the world makes itself intelligible to you. Uh, love also operates on that broader cognitive understanding in much the same way. And that's where vision becomes a very useful metaphor because the forms of influence that it takes uh, are best described using visual metaphors, things like focus, again, and attention, uh, direction of seeing, being placed in a certain spot. You know, one of the important facts about perception, which makes it so appropriate here as a model for cognition for me, is that perception is always a very particular matter of seeing the world from a certain location. And that location and the conditions of seeing uh, are going to combine with your mental facts about you and your, your makeup and what you bring to the situation to condition the experience so that no two people are ever going to have just the same experience. And I think that's a very important 
foundational sort of fact, both for understanding love and also for understanding reason, because there's a great tendency, not only among philosophers either, to think of reason as a very abstract, disembodied experience of the world. Uh, and I think that the more abstract and disembodied we make it in the way that we conceive of it and talk about it, the less it has to do with the actual experiences that we have uh, as as parts of our reasoning about the world, as parts of our reasoning in and reasoning through the world. And so they become less adequate models for what actually goes on uh, when a human being tries to understand the world. So um, you you start out, I mean, once you sort of describe in... in, in um, in general terms, um, you know, what love is and the, the sort of love that you're talking about between two, you know, basically in the paradigmatic case, um, two unrelated people, right? Not as opposed, yeah. well, I mean, you mentioned that if some cases of family love could be covered by your account. Um, right. but mainly, family love is tricky, yeah. Yeah, but mainly you have in mind between you know, either romantic love or, or even between between friends. Right. Um, the kind of love that we generally choose for ourselves are the ones that I'm, I'm most interested in. Right. That's what I was thinking, as where there's this element of, of choice. Yeah. Um, so could you explain the, uh, the... You begin with the distinction between a sort of an anti-rational, you know, view of, of love or of this relationship and... And the rational view, and you you put yourself on the rational side of that distinction. Um, so, could you explain those two different views, and 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 why you're you know which one you're on, and what your position you're 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 putting yourself in? Yeah, this is really where the book started for me, and again, it was a case of uh, disagreeing with somebody, thinking someone was quite completely wrong. Um, and in this case, that person was Harry Frankfurt, who was my advisor in grad school and was a wonderful advisor and a great person to work with. Uh, and we disagreed on many, many very deep foundational issues uh, in philosophy, but it never was a problem in terms of you know working with him um, in the slightest. In fact, it was really kind of stimulating, and, and I found it really, really healthy and good. And so I came away from grad school and, and again for several years really thinking that at least in what he had written about love, uh, as wonderful you know, as it is, and his writings are wonderful, uh, they're great, great reads among other things. You know, they're fun to read, which is not always true in philosophy. Uh, but I really felt that foundationally it was just all wrong because Harry has this view which I ended up calling anti-rationalism, the core of which I take to be that uh, there are no reasons for love. That is, you can't give any sort of justifying reason to make a love legitimate or justified or to, to support it in, in any sort of uh, justificatory relationship. And in fact, at the very process, the very act of asking for such a reason or looking for one is misguided. It's not that love is unjustified in Harry's view. It's simply that uh, the question doesn't arise. It's not the right context to speak or think about justification. And it seemed to me very apparent all along that, of course, we have reasons for loving people. Um, and we can often give a lot of those reasons. We probably can never give all of them. There are limits to our knowledge of our own reasons. And that's one of the things I think anti-rationalists are moved by when they deny that we have any. But obviously that's not enough to support anti-rationalism. But there's a lot more going on that they tend to cite as support. And so one of the things that I knew I had to do in this book was to explain away these phenomena that seem to support anti-rationalism. So, for instance, uh, somebody like Harry Frankfurt would make 
observations about love, which clearly are right. And the more I worked on this, the more I started to think, you know, although I still don't share his fundamental suppositions, he's really onto something. He, what he says about love is very, very insightful, and I really have to take account of this. So I feel like my view actually got a lot closer to his as I went on than I intended it to be. Uh-huh. So some of the reasons, for instance, you know, why would you be an anti-rationalist? Well, look, there's this worry that if you can give a justification for love, then anybody who appreciates the force of that justification would also be required to love that person. So if I can give you the list that explains why I love a certain person, and you see, oh, here's the list, and yes, those are all good reasons. That explains you know, why uh, he loves her. Then you would have to love her also. Uh, because, of course, the justification amounts to a requirement. Rationally speaking, you can't have good reasons for something. It would be like having a belief, right? If I see that the reasons, your reasons for your belief are really good, uh, so that they really do justify your belief, ordinarily, I also will come to hold that belief. Right. I won't just say, oh, you've got really reasons for, a good reason for believing that. I accept that you do, but I still don't. You know, that, in ordinary cases, doesn't really work that way. It doesn't seem to make sense. But in the case of love, you don't want it to work that way. It seems quite clear that it doesn't. Uh, I can regard your love for someone as perfectly reasonable and legitimate and not mistaken in any way, not inviting any sort of criticism or hesitation, even or reservation, and yet not feel that myself. Why not? Well, it does seem that there is this non-rationalistic element there. There's something missing. And a natural thought, and it's Harry Frankfurt's thought, is that this thing that is missing has nothing to do with reason whatsoever. Mm-hmm. You need something more. And so therefore what's essential in love is something that's not a matter of reasons at all. And from there, it's a pretty short step to thinking, you know, well, yeah, love just doesn't involve reasons. Love is not just a matter of reasons. So, so yeah. Sorry. Oh, well, I was just going to say the, the, the sort of fear, the anti-rationalist fear that is being responded to here is of what I call in the book a hyper-rationalist position, okay. which would assert things like, uh, you know, if... Uh, if you appreciate my reasons for loving someone, you also have to love her. Uh, if I love a certain property in the person that I love and somebody else has that property, then I have to love that person too. I have to love everybody who has those properties, you know, that kind of thing. That's what I call the promiscuity problem in the book. Uh, there's the trading up problem, right, which is, um, you know, if I love somebody for her properties, somebody else comes along with better properties, I should ditch the first person and start loving the second person. So, you know, either you're supposed to love both, which is the promiscuity, or maybe we're psychologically incapable of loving both, so I have to leave the first one and love the second one, which is the trading up problem. Both of those should not, at the very least, be things that we're rationally required to do. You know, they're things that happen in life, they're real phenomena, but you don't want an account of love that says that, rationally speaking, this is what you have to do. It would be irrational to stay with that first person that you fell in love with. Um, so you just you just mentioned a couple of the problems that you raised for the rationalist uh, view, but um, before we I sort of go on with that, uh, the the core the part of the view you know where you're agreeing with the anti-rationalist, um, yeah. you know, is that it's it's none of the you know whatever set of properties whatever reasons you might give. Um, uh, for loving a particular person, um, those will n- they will never be sufficient, right? right for, to explain why you love that person, there'll always be some extra bit that um, you basically is there to explain why somebody else who recognizes all those properties is not rationally obligated to love that person as well, because presumably they are not queuing in to that extra element. 
Uh, right, right. Okay. It's never going to be enough to add up to a rational requirement at any rate. So, um, is is so is your view? This just sort of occurred to me. Does does your view sort of have? Do you have built into it some sort of a hey, of persons that there's some other thing other than their properties that they have, and that that sort of hidden essence is part of what we the properties sort of fix the reference of this hexady. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, that's a really interesting question. I think in a sense, though I have not articulated it to myself in those terms, in a sense I think that I would agree with that. Uh, that what really plays that role for me is the the particular subjective perspective that a person occupies on the world, which is what individuates them from any other person, even a person qualitatively identical, say, the qualitatively identical duplicate or replica, still is not going to occupy your perceptual space, your subjective outlook on the world. And And that seems to me a deep fact about persons. And I think that that's right, that much of this view that I'm trying to, to grow my way towards sort of builds itself around the importance of that subjectivity, that that's what makes persons very metaphysically special. So th- this is your subjectivity, in other words, or the, the lover's subjectivity? Well, it's, it's both, I think. I mean, people, something that didn't have that kind of subjectivity wouldn't love. Yeah. And then I think that love for persons is special, and it's unlike other loves because you're loving something else that has that kind of subjectivity. And so there's this long tradition in writing about love, not as much maybe among philosophers, though it's there in some places, but certainly among novelists. And uh, Marcel Proust is an example that I quote a few times in the book, where he writes that love is all about this desire to uh, make connection with another person in the deepest metaphysical sense, to basically come into contact with their inner consciousness, their subjectivity, which of course is impossible. You know, one of the reasons that Proust's writings are so sad a lot of the time is because he recognizes that this thing that he thinks love makes us want is something that we will never have. It's an impossible longing. But yeah, I think that that inner, the, the subjective, the fact that we exist as, as, as I say in the book, objects that are also subjects, uh, it's really crucial to understanding how love works the way it does. And there, there is, at least to some degree, this desire to identify with the person to adopt their perspective on the world, which we can only do through imagination and we can only do imperfectly. But uh, yes, that's part of the reason or that's part of the way that we do attach to particular people. You know, if I were told um, we're going to tomorrow take away your father, but don't worry, we will uh, replace him with an identical duplicate who will look and act just the same, I wouldn't be happy about that. In that context, I wouldn't accept a duplicate. Uh, It's still not my father. Why not? I think you have to make reference to that Subjectivity, in order to explain why it's not. Okay, so so back to the to the reasons. Um, you raise for for anybody who is either a hyper or, in, in your case, a, a more milder rational has a milder view. Um, uh, you raise the what you call the universality, uh, promiscuity, trading up, which you mentioned, and the uh, inconstancy problems. Um, that arise for any anybody who chooses a a rational view of love. Right. Um, could you could you briefly explain those and then how you um, deal with each of those? Yeah, um, the universality problem uh, is again. You know, if I love someone for a given property, say because she's beautiful, that's a reason people often give for as part of the reason at least why they love someone. Uh, but if I love my girlfriend because she's beautiful. 
how can I refrain from loving someone else who is also beautiful? Rationality and consistency seem to require that you have the same response, you know, wherever that property appears. Uh, otherwise, you know, that's just sort of the basic rules, right, for justification. If it's a justification over here, it ought to be a justification over there, too. Um, the promiscuity problem you know, is very closely related, I think. Uh, if I love uh, the person because she's beautiful, then rationality uh, requires me to love anyone who has that property. Uh, the trading up problem is the version of that which says, again, you know, well, maybe I can't love everyone, so shouldn't then I love the most beautiful person? If I love somebody because she's beautiful and somebody else more beautiful comes along, it seems rationality requires that I respond even more strongly to the property as instantiated in that person because she's more beautiful. And all of these, of course, seem to go against what love requires. Uh, the final version, or the final problem, the inconstancy problem. If I love somebody because she's beautiful and then she stops being beautiful, which is something people you know, often do as they get older, they at least in many cases get less beautiful, shouldn't I then love her less or not love her at all if she's no longer beautiful? Uh, now, the claim, to be clear, is not that people don't do that. Obviously, in some cases, people do fall out of love when the person that they love loses those properties that made them fall in love in the first place. But the worry seems to be that we have a rational requirement here, that if you see reasons as functioning in this context, uh, if you see that there is possible to give a justification for love, then once those properties change, you no longer have that justification. And so rationally speaking, you should stop loving this person. That's the element that seems objectionable, not only to the anti-rationalists, but to me, I agree with them on that. It is objectionable. We shouldn't be rationally required to stop loving somebody because that person loses the properties that we initially fell in love with, even though it might happen again. You know, it might happen. We can acknowledge that. It's a separate issue. But rationality shouldn't demand that we do that and criticize us as irrational if we don't do that. So you also raise... Um uh both epistemological problems um mm. and and moral problems that also arise as a result of the uh the rational view um one of the epistemological problems i think you called the the problem of illusory qualities um the i guess basically the idea that that love love makes you blind to uh to the reality of of your beloved uh, or, or what their real qualities are, um, and normally, um, you know, from an epistemological, you know, justificatory point of view, um, you know, the goal, of course, is is to be epistemically, you know, clear-headed, and to, you know, to track the truth, and and, you know, your justification should give you good reasons to believe something, as you notice that that anybody should accept. Mm. Um, and not should not be the sorts of reasons that um, distort, you know, that that lead to this distortion or cause some sort of distortion. Um, so, could you explain that problem a bit and and how you respond to that? Yeah, um, and the problem I'm, I'm not sure is confined to people with rationalist views, although in some ways it may be more pointed for them or for us, I should say because uh, we do place so much emphasis on the attractive properties of the person that you love. And then again, those are what function as the justification for love, uh, to which it will immediately be pointed out, well, people in love very often aren't very good at accurately perceiving the properties of the person that they're in love with. In fact, infatuation, you know, the early stages of romantic love, 
very much seem to be characterized by uh, uh, persistently sort of, I don't want to say delusional, that may, may be too strong, though in some cases I'm sure it's not, but a persistent perceptual bias, if nothing else, um, noticing all of the wonderful things about this person, not noticing the things that aren't very wonderful at all, and even taking things that really aren't very wonderful and seeing them as if they were. All of those are very real psychological phenomena, at least in the early stages of love. So there seems to be this potentially deep conflict on which uh, a few philosophers in the last few years in particular have, have picked up and then written about. Uh, this conflict between love as a, a mental state or a state of being and being a good, responsible, well-functioning epistemic agent. Uh, it seems like love messes up your perception. And of course, you have this cliche, love is blind. Well, there's a lot of truth in that cliche. So clearly there is something to this. And, and as with a lot of this book, uh, it ends up wanting much of the time to sort of carve out a middle position. I don't want to simply say, oh, no, this is a mistake. Love never disrupts our epistemic abilities. It never poses an epistemic obstacle. Clearly, sometimes it does. And clearly there is also a kind of biasing or I – mean, I want to sort of avoid the word biasing, though, in a way, because that's – the word biasing is biased. You know, it has a negative connotation itself. There is a kind of a slanting or a kind of refocusing involved in loving. There's no question about that. Uh, but if we get too critical about that, um, as I think, for instance, uh, you know, my friend Simon Keller does when he uh, he has written a couple articles and in his book uh, about loyalty, about the effects that this can have. And one of his articles is called Friendship and Belief. And he points out, again, rightly, that uh, love and friendship do make epistemic demands of us. And they, for instance, demand that uh, I try to see the things that my friend does in a positive light, whereas I might not normally. So, you know, he gives this example of a friend who goes to his friend's poetry reading. And he says, you know, this guy should be prepared to like the poetry if he can. Uh, the fact that he's a friend is going to affect how he hears it. He might, if he were an impartial stranger, sit there and not be very interested, say that's not very good, and so on and so forth. But as a friend, he is called on to actually like it, if possible for him to like it. This is one of the things we expect from our friends. Well, you know, there's some debate, obviously, and I've talked to a lot of people who just think that this isn't a requirement of friendship at all. But I'm happy, actually, to give Keller that it is. Uh, but what I find missing from the way that he has approached it is the fact that in addition to leading us away from the truth, which I think it sometimes does, it also very often helps lead us toward the truth. Uh, we shouldn't forget that the world is complicated and it's hard to perceive. And, you know, something like poetry, to use Keller's own example, and an example, you know, I certainly have had some experience with, uh, poetry's hard. It's hard to get. It requires a special effort, at least most poetry. You really have to pay attention and think about it. And I think the ideal way to approach a poem, actually, is to sit down and sort of be on the poet's side from the beginning, rather than the sort of antagonistic, critical relationship, which we often think is what uh, epistemic responsibility requires. You know, I think that detachment and being dispassionate and being objective in that very critical sense have really been valorized uh, in our culture and in our, our critical discourse to the point where we do have this image that the ideal evaluator, and we might also say the ideal critic, as if those two words meant the same thing, would be the person with no personal stake whatsoever who sat there sort of being as objective and disimpassioned and cold as possible and then sort of regarded it from you know that sort of Apollonian height. 
Uh, and I think, in fact, with a lot of cases, poetry being just one, that's really not a great way to understand a poem. I don't think it's a great way to understand a piece of music, and I'm not sure it's a great way to understand human behavior. I think that when we look at people as if they are clinical subjects or something of that sort, we very often misunderstand why they're doing what they do. And it's very easy for us to make negative judgments of people and say, oh, they're just flawed in this way or broken in that way. Whereas a more sensitive understanding, which would also be the kind of understanding that love calls on us to, to at least try to reach, which would be to get inside that person's head and say, well, no, what are they really thinking here? Uh, what did they think they were going to achieve by this? What was actually moving them? You know, was it concerned for someone they love, concerned for their children or something like that? Was it a legitimate fear or anxiety that we might be able to be sympathetic with? You know, people make mistakes and they do bad things. And I'm certainly not denying the existence of immorality or even the existence of evil. But I think that in a lot of cases, uh, people actually behave better than we realize at first. And understanding them, really seeing why they acted the way they did, and understanding that in, in the same situation we might have acted the same way, is very much a matter of being sympathetic, of getting in their heads, of getting close to them, of, of viewing it from uh, an engaged standpoint rather than a disengaged standpoint. It's a matter of doing all those things that love pushes us to do, uh, as opposed to, again, you know, being the disengaged uh, non-passionate, objective critic. That person, in some cases, is actually going to get a lot of things wrong. Well, let me just, um, I guess the, the, the fear here, if, you, mm-hmm. if, if fears, I'm not sure that's the correct word, but the worry is that, um, yeah, it's one thing to not sort of adopt this sort of completely, you know, objective, you know, separate um, you know, unsympathetic, not, not antipathetic, but just not engaged, uh, to mm-hmm. use your word, not engaged relation whenever we're, you know, assessing someone or some act or something like that. And I think the worry is that um, love kind of puts you too far in the other direction, that um, you can be sympathetic with people, you know, in this way um, that corrects for you know, perhaps a, a, a disengaged um, assessment mm-hmm. um, without uh, without going as far as what love, you know, seems to, you know, uh, you know, make people do. Um, and, and that that's what's sort of objectionable. It's, it's, it's not so much that we shouldn't be engaged when we assess, but that the sort of engagement that love, you know, uh, you know, leads us to have um, when we're assessing um, is sort of so far in the other direction that right. it really does, you know, sort of create this distorting illusion, you know, illusory thing, you know, the blindness, the, the metaphor of, of being blind. Right. And I think that that's a fair worry. It's not one that I want to deny. It's not one where I want to say, oh, there's nothing to that, because clearly there is. Uh, Love is certainly capable of doing that and on occasions does. And so we can all agree, for instance, that at the extreme, uh, an extreme version of this sort of demand would be that I approve of the behavior of someone in my life, you know, my child, for instance, no matter what he does. 
And so even if he goes out and commits a crime, a very serious crime, premeditated, you know, not something that you could look at him and say, oh, he had good reason, I would still support him because I love him. And I would still uh, try to hide the fact that he has done this and try to shield him from the consequences and so on. And obviously, there are cases in the world where people do this sort of thing. Uh, and I completely agree that they shouldn't. And although they do it out of love and in their minds they're justified in doing it and it's the right thing to do, I don't think that it's good behavior. I think that goes too far. And so then, you know, so the question is somewhere in the middle is that happy ground where we see people sympathetically enough without being so sympathetic that we're going to support them no matter what they do. Um, does love necessarily push us past that happy medium? And that's a very difficult question. And in part, I think how we answer that question depends on whether we're thinking about love, which I've been sort of throwing around that word as if, you know, it's a single unitary phenomenon. And obviously it's not. If we're thinking about it more in terms of infatuation, then again, I think, uh, yeah, probably it, it would push us past the happy medium more towards the extreme in a lot of cases. Uh, infatuation does have an often distorting effect on how we see things. Whereas the love that obtains between uh, friends or between a romantic couple who say have been together for quite a while, so they're past the infatuation stage, I think at least ideally, and again, I'm not saying this works in all actual cases, clearly it doesn't, but ideally, a, a couple who have been together for a long time would actually be able to see each other very clearly. Uh, and so on the one hand, they would see things about each other that no one else can see. And I think, you know, in some sense, that is obviously true. But that if the one partner, say, did do something really bad, that the other person would, on the one hand, be able to understand it in a way that other people couldn't, but not to the point where he would simply support it and say, you know, I stand behind you no matter what. I forgive you. It doesn't matter. In fact, part of love and part of really mature love is being able to point out to somebody when they have done something wrong or when they could improve in some way. Uh, and it's a very delicate thing. Obviously, it's very hard in a lot of cases to do this. But I think my own view about love uh, is that sometimes that's part of love. Um, that's, uh, that's a requirement of love to be able to I'm trying to remember the Jane Austen phrase that she uses in Emma, and I can't remember it exactly, but, you know, you have that wonderful moment where Emma is corrected by, I'm even blanking on his name, but the guy that she ends up with, um, who does this, you know, she's very upset about it because she values his uh, opinion of her so much. And yet it's clear that the loving thing to do in this case is also uh, the somewhat harsh and mildly cruel thing to do, which is to say to her, you've behaved badly, you can be better than this. So how about the um, another epistemological problem was, was this idea that um, you're supposed to uh, – that love requires you to hold false beliefs um, in the face of countervailing evidence. Um, it's not just a matter of, you know, sort of – being sympathetically engaged and, and assessing somebody from a from a more sympathetic point of view than 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 we might normally have, mm -hmm. but it's also a matter of like actively, you might say, um, not seeking, you know, disconfirming evidence of um, you know of uh, you know that might you know who knows that might that might shake your love or even or even destroy it. In other words. It, it 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 forces it forces you uh the worry is the it, yeah. it forces you to commit c 
confirmation bias, whereas in the psychological literature, you know, confirmation bias is, yeah, we have it, we know it, (laughs) and here are various ways to overcome it. Mm. And it seems like love is saying, no, 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 you know, let's let's have, you know, the more confirmation bias, the better, (laughs) right? Um, Yeah, that is at least a somewhat common understanding of love, though, again, I would want to say that that's... That, at least taken that far, is a misunderstanding. Um, that infatuation, again, certainly pushes us in that direction. The, you know, the more confirmation bias, the better, as you put it. Uh, but surely that goes too far. And I think it always goes too far as well. Uh, and, you know, even Keller doesn't make the claim that love requires us to hold certain beliefs no matter what. And I think somebody who did. We could take, again, you know, the, the example of the mother who was going to support her son and believe that he's a good person no matter what the evidence says uh, and so you know he could never kill anyone for instance even if the evidence that he has is extremely clear at that point we're clearly in the realm of irrationality and i don't i would not support that in any way and but i also don't see any reason for thinking that love actually ever requires that it does push us in that direction to some degree yeah. It does bias us in certain ways. I, I completely acknowledge that. And, and I acknowledge that that bias sometimes leads to mistakes. So what I really do in the book in terms of trying to respond to those sorts of worries is mostly simply to point out that it also pushes us in the other direction quite a bit, which tends to be ignored, that it keeps us from making certain sorts of mistakes. And that the idea of bias... Um, it's not as straightforward as it initially seems. We, we have this sort of naive view that we can tell when somebody's biased and when they're not, as if there is this stable, neutral ground on which to stand, where, again, the ideal epistemic observer stands. And I think the truth of it is that actually there's a, a bunch of different places where one might stand, which would look biased from one perspective and not from another. And then the question becomes, well, exactly how biased and in which direction biased do you want to be? Uh, in some circumstances, and I certainly can't deny this, the person who is most objective, most scientific, and most methodical and so on is going to get the right answer. And in some contexts, that's in fact the way to be. Uh, in contexts where we're dealing with individual people, certainly in personal relationships, but I think in a lot of other related contexts as well, that sort of stand often, again, leads us to miss things. Uh, there's a lot of debate about this in uh, the literature about uh, medicine, um, the philosophical literature, you know, about, uh, well, when a doctor is uh, diagnosing patients, um, should she uh, be as disengaged as possible and sort of regard them, you know, again, clinically look at the, right. pay more attention to the statistics and the test results than to her, or should she actually get personally involved with the patients, uh, have a relationship of that sort, have a, you know, sort of emotional response. And there's a fair bit of research that seems to suggest at least that uh, getting involved in your patients uh, lives getting involved with them as people actually lets you make better diagnoses uh, that um, it rather than being a kind of a bias that sways you away from the truth uh, it lets you get to know them better and see you know oh what's really going on in this person's case is this you know the test results might mean that in a different case but here it's something else 
Now, of course, there's costs to that, obviously, right? And for a doctor, for instance, one of the costs is getting personally involved in the lives of your patients. Uh, it can be emotionally, you know, incredibly wearing. So it's not an easy thing to do, which is one of the reasons why love tends to be limited to a small number of people. We, we don't have the energy or the resources to love everybody. You know, that's a wonderful ideal we sometimes hear in religious contexts and others. But uh, it's not, however it would be, uh, if we could do it, and it may also be that it wouldn't be actually as good as we imagined for reasons that are hard to imagine. Uh, it's not an option. Anyway, obviously, it's, it's well beyond anything that we could uh, achieve as, as flawed, limited human beings. Yeah, so um, you just raised the, the issue of other, other people, you know, other than the beloved. And this, uh, in your book, um, you, you raise several moral problems that um, – that love um, uh, engenders. Um, typically, it, it it narrows our focus to one person, right? I mean, and part of that is probably just a, a, a resource, you know, um, phenomenon that we just, you can't love, at least not in this sense, you know, more than, you know, a few people. Um, but, of course, the moral issue is, you know, if if, if you're supposed to treat people um, you know, you have moral obligations to, to all sorts of people, you know, qua people. Um, and that by narrowing, narrowing our focus to one person, we end up ignoring the legitimate sort of moral claims of others on us. Um, and I don't mean super erogatory, but, you know, sort of the, the sorts of ethical things that we ought to do. Um, and then we start ignoring other people because we're in love with somebody um and that that's an interesting moral issue so how do how do you deal with that yeah it's an interesting and a very complicated moral issue and also i think a very poignant moral issue uh because in a in a sense both parties here have legitimate claims uh, all the one person wants is to be loved and there's nothing inherently intrinsically wrong with that but then the people who are being ignored who really need help in the world you know all they want is to be helped and clearly there's nothing wrong with that desire or that claim and in one way at least this sort of worry is especially pressing for uh, you know, relatively privileged bourgeois people like us because, you know, we're pretty well off. Um, Speak I guess, for yourself. Well, <laughs> in relative, I, I, you notice I had the word relatively in there. So, but compared to a lot of people in the world, I know yes, what you're true. saying. Yes, that's so, right, yes. true. Um, we could think about what John Stuart Mill said in this connection as maybe a way of, of making this point um, in writing about personal relations and you know, whether utilitarianism forbade those. He said, well, uh, you know, it's really a good strategy for making sure that people get taken care of to allow people to have personal relationships and then they'll take good care of each other. And, and there's certainly something understandable about that in principle. But the problem with, again, you know, people like us using that strategy to justify our personal relationships is that chances are I'm going to go out there and find somebody else who's pretty much like me, who's already doing reasonably well in life and doesn't really need to be taken care of. Uh, I'm, I'm not most likely going to fall in love with somebody who is starving or literally homeless or something like that. And certainly not, you know, the, the people who on average need the most help are not even located geographically all that close to us. Those aren't the people I'm going to be forming close friendships with. They're not the people I'm going to be falling in love with. So clearly this very real tendency that love has to make us stop thinking about other people 
uh, can have terrible effects. And I think that that's entirely true. And I don't want to deny that. Um, so I guess in the book I say – well, I say a couple of things about it. And there's also something else I've been thinking about really since the book has been completed, uh, which I don't really emphasize in the book but now sort of wish I had, which is that – Part of the best way to respond to that, I think, would be not by changing our tendency to love individuals. Um, Some people do that, and I think, you know, maybe we should come back to that. But for most of us, we're not going to do that, and I'm not sure that morality exactly demands that we do that. But we do often have very unrealistic and in some ways uh, unsustainable beliefs about how to express love and how to show somebody that they're loved so that... If we are somewhat materialistic uh, inhabitants of this materialistic society that surrounds us, uh, we think that we can show love by, uh, you know, buying jewelry and things like that, right? Giving them an expensive diamond ring or, um, or, or going on an expensive vacation with them. You know, spending a lot of money sort of shows that you love somebody. And, and that probably is the place to start, at least, if we really want to combat this tendency that love has. Uh, not by trying not to love. I'm not sure that the effects of that would actually be so great, uh, at least in most cases, but by saying, you know, okay, but love does involve partiality. As I said some time ago when I was talking about Kagan, I'm not going to give up on that idea, but partiality does not have to be expressed materialistically. Uh, And we can make some pretty big contributions to the well-being of really poorly off needy people in the world. Uh, at some material cost to us, but without giving up the ability to have friendships and close romantic love relationships and all that. I don't think those are incompatible. Well, let me uh, – this sort of raises a, a question that um, that I, I, I guess I could have raised before. Um, but we don't really – you didn't – you don't really go into the sorts of properties that, you know, that – Form justifications for people to love others. Um, you know, you mentioned beauty. That's a you know fairly standard one. Um, but you know, being rich is another property. <laughs> and um, from what what I'm hearing now is something to the effect of there are some properties that are justificatory of love, and and beauty is one of them. But being rich uh, may not be. Yeah, I would definitely say that. In in my view. Um, and I could try to argue for this view, but it is clearly, you know, one could accept a lot of this picture I'm giving without accepting the particular claims about which properties justify. But in my view, I do think that beauty is a, an understandable justification. I certainly think that intelligence is, a uh, sense of humor, you know, something like that. The things that actually make us better persons in some pretty broad sense of the word better and clearly not just morally better. Uh, and I don't think that being rich makes you a better person. In some cases, you are rich because you're a good person, but in a lot of cases, that's not true either, and sometimes it's the opposite of the truth. Um, but either way, I don't think that it affects the quality of you as a person and what makes you lovable. Uh, and so I think that – I'm not saying that being rich uh, can never function as an explanation of somebody's love because I know that there are people who disagree with me and think that rich people are lovable. And so in that case, the fact that X is rich might well be part of the reason or the sole reason why Y fell in love with X. But in that case, I think X is – or sorry, Y is making a mistake. Uh, you know, it, he fell in love with her for a reason that really isn't a good reason for loving somebody, unlike those other ones. Whereas, you say, yeah, I, I don't give a definitive list. I don't try to defend a particular view. I tend to fall back on pretty standard examples that I take it most people will agree with because it's just for illustrative purposes. 
but uh, yeah, I would definitely not put rich on my, being rich on my own list. So, are, are there any kind? Uh, you you mentioned about you know properties that somehow make make you, I guess, the the lover a, a better person. Mm-hmm. Are, are is that a sort of a criterion, maybe, in some loose sense of which sorts of properties are good reasons as opposed to just simply you know reasons i mean i i assume that you you know by being a you know falling on the rationalist side of the of the divide that we started with we're talking about reasons that are that are good ones that that themselves are justifiable not just any reason i mean right not just anything that could be an explanation exactly it's going to count as a justifying reason yeah that's right and yeah in general I, i think that that without having thought much about this, and I might well go away and later today think, oh, that was a stupid thing to say, but off the cuff, it sounds to me like that's going to characterize the kind of reasons we're looking for, the things that make you a good person. But again, good in a very broad sense, not just a moral sense. Um, Being good at any sort of art or being skilled at any kind of interesting pursuit would be the sort of thing that makes you uh, more lovable than you might otherwise be if you didn't have that skill. And and I don't want to suggest, just to be clear, um, I don't want to suggest that there's a really, really high bar that you have to meet here in order to be lovable. I think that most people uh, are lovable. I, I wonder whether truly evil people are, you know, whether it's possible to love a truly deeply evil person without making a mistake, and I tend to think that probably it's not. But putting aside the truly deeply evil people, um, I think that most people are lovable and that it is at least possible to love pretty much anybody you might find and not be making a mistake in doing it. And you might well know, again, that you know, you're not loving uh, the most lovable person around from an objective point of view. Uh, there's nothing that this person has that somebody else doesn't have to an even greater degree. But nonetheless, there's enough of it here. This is the person I love. This is the person I identify with. And, and this, again, is one of the elements of anti-rationalist thought that I, I tend to find very amenable. I think they're generally right about that. Uh, you don't be, need to be able to explain why this particular person, uh, and you certainly don't need to be able to justify why this particular person and not somebody else. It is enough there to say, look, you know, this person, they're a person, they're lovable, they've got a subjectivity that I identify with. Um, that's enough. You know, how did it happen? Why this person and not someone else? Who knows? I was in the right place at the right time. That's how love works. So, um, okay, so going back to the the problems, the, mor- the moral problems. Right. Um, uh, you also talk about cases where, you know, because of your the tunnel vision and the, the focus, the attention on one particular person, mm-hmm. um, that love can actually cause us to actually do immoral things, not just just not just sort of neglect other people, but actually actively do things that that hurt others um, in order to, you know, in in the favor of the beloved. So I think you give an example, uh, roughly speaking, I mean, if you 
you know, give information to some Nazis um, to, you know, you point them in the direction of, you know, where some, some, you know, other Jews are hiding so that they don't find your beloved. And, you know, of course, we all know what's going to happen to those Jews, but hey, it's not, not your beloved. Right. You've saved the one that you care exactly. about. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a particular example that I talk about in the book that is, uh, it's derived from Michael Andace's novel, The English Patient. And it is a person who is in love. And yeah, who, who during World War II, you know, gives some valuable information to the Nazis in order that he can basically get back to where she is. Uh, and again, you know, clearly these things happen. There's no question about it. There's no point in denying it. Uh, and there's no point in, in saying, you know, despite the fact that they happen, love is purely moral and somehow can never live, lead to bad things. Obviously, it, it can. That sort of example shows it. Um, to my mind, uh, and, and this is, I don't know if this is something so much I can argue for as much as, you know, just something that is perhaps an, a matter of temperament, maybe more than anything else. Um, but to my mind, this is not a flaw in love exactly. It's an expression of the tragic nature of the world. It's an expression of the fact that there is no motive so pure that it can't lead to something terrible. I don't think there's any such thing as the purely moral motive. Um, even you know what a Kantian might identify as the purely moral motive, the desire to do what you take to be the morally right thing can lead you astray because you might have false beliefs about what the right thing is. Um, in the case of love, you might have true beliefs about what love is pushing you towards doing, but then you might mistakenly think that that's what matters most in this situation rather than seeing well you know wait a minute there's other people's lives at stake here uh yes there is my commitment to this person which is important but i do also have to remember the existence of other people and there's no doubt that love sometimes makes it harder for us to do that than it would be otherwise it's an interesting situation because I think at the same time, love is a large part of what makes it possible for us to recognize the existence of other people. I think that we really learn in the strong sense that other people exist. You know, we can see their bodies, we see them moving around and so on, but to really grasp the fact that they exist and, and as, are as real as we are, uh, I think we learn that by coming to love people. That's when you really accept their existence as real in the fullest sense. So love, on the one hand, I think, is necessary for moral knowledge. Uh, we wouldn't love people. Uh, we wouldn't. Sorry, we wouldn't understand people mm-hmm. nearly as well as we do uh, if it weren't for the fact that we loved some of them. And I'm not sure that we'd have any moral understanding at all in a world where nobody loved anybody. That knowledge does have to come from somewhere. But at the same time, that very same emotion that does help us get that knowledge, and, and that also does often lead us to behave better than we would otherwise, and be larger people than we could be, and to go to great lengths for the sake of somebody else, and make sacrifices, and grow as individuals, and so on. You know, it does all those good things too, but it does also sometimes do terrible things. Uh, in that, I think love is like any other emotion, and like any other thing. Like I said, I, I strongly, deeply believes that it's a it's a tragic world and there's no such thing as a morally pure motive that can't lead to bad outcomes. Well, on that note, um, I think we have time for uh, one short question maybe, which is, um, I guess, what what are your next projects? I mean, are you, are you planning some sort of a follow-up on this book or are you, um, you know, going off in another direction entirely? 
I think the next thing, there's two answers to that question. One is that I actually just finished a very short book, um, which, uh, you know, the Routledge series, uh, Thinking in Action. I did a, it, it's this wonderful little series where, you know, philosophers write books not intended just for philosophers. And uh, they pick some interesting topic and they write a short book about it. So I just did one about loyalty. So it was nice because, uh, in a way, I got to go back to that larger loyalty project I was thinking about before and actually get to write a version of that book. Um, and it followed very naturally from the love stuff. And I'm happy with how it came out. Uh, and that one I just finished a couple weeks ago. And so the question of the next project, I'm still a little bit not sure yet. I'm still deciding. But I've been wanting for a long time to write something about metaphor. Um, and this connects with my work as a poet. Because I think that metaphor is obviously important for poetry, but also just as obviously perhaps very important for philosophy and for making sense of the world. And I suppose that it also connects with the thinking about cognition and perception and so on in love's vision. So it's in one way, on the surface, it may look like it's a radical change of direction and going into philosophy of language or something like that. But actually, I think it's a natural extension of the things that I've been thinking about for quite a while now. Oh, very good. So... um We've been talking with uh, Troy Jollymore from uh, California State University, Chico, about his new book, uh, Love's Vision, from Princeton University Press. Um, thanks, Joy, Troy, for, uh, for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. Okay. Thank you. Bye. You've just been listening to an interview with Troy Jollymore, professor of philosophy at Cal State University at Chico, talking about his new book, Love's Vision, from Princeton University Press. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed our broadcast, and thank you for listening. <laughs>